Good evening. It's about that time. It's great to be here at the end of a beautiful Lord's Day to praise Him together. Before Doug Gertis brings our opening prayer, sing number 222, something about that name. <clears throat> Please pray with me. Father, we come to you in prayer this evening. Always blessed and always encouraged by the opportunity we have to come here to be with brothers and sisters and to worship, to worship and glorify you, to hear some more of your word, Father. We are so appreciative of that blessing that we have that you've given to us to allow us to understand your character and to understand your will for us, to see the power and the glory and the wisdom and the infinite knowledge that you have, Father. We thank you so very much for giving us that guidance. We pray, Father, that uh, we would come to understand it and importantly share it with others and imply it to our lives, Father, that we would be lights unto the world. We pray for all those that are on the prayer list, Father, and uh, we pray that you would give them healing and relief, comfort, you give them guidance. We pray, Father, that we as a body would uh, come together and, and help as, as best we can to all those that are sick and suffering. Be with us this evening, Father, as we go into this worship. Be with Matt as he gives us a lesson, Father. We pray that uh, we would be encouraged 
and that we would be able to come together as a stronger body to serve and glorify you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Brent is going to come and lead us in a prayer and lead our thoughts regarding the suffering and death of our Lord. So now let's kind of go there. This beautiful song is written from the perspective of somebody who imagined themselves at the foot of the cross, <clears throat> beneath the cross of Jesus. Beneath the cross The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is Praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him, falling on their knees they paid homage to him and when they had mocked him they took him they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him then they led him away to crucify him shall we pray our god and our father thank you for this time that we have this quiet place that we can come here and we can reflect upon your love that you were able to, that you were willing to send Jesus to die for us. Thank you for the love that He had, that that that, that He was willing to, to to obey, and 
and and give himself up for our sacrifice. He was the he was the holy one. He was unblemished. He was sinless, and and he he fulfilled the law at at at, at that time. Father, as, as we think about this and we partake of the Lord's Supper, at this, at this time we want to partake of the bread that represents his body. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lord's Supper. Continuing our thanks, Father, we at this time we ask you to, to to bless the cup, the the cup that represents the blood, the the blood that has the power to wash away our sins. The as as we partake of it, once again we we pray that that we'll remember Jesus, we'll remember the blood, and remember His sacrifice. In Jesus' name, Amen. this time we also have the opportunity to, to reflect on all of the things that God has, has given us in our life and and this time that we have that we can return part of what what he's given to us we have boxes set in the back that you can leave your contribution there shall we pray our God and our Father we're thankful for all the blessings that we have thankful that that you have the power that you can continue to control this earth and you can continue to to watch after us and you can continue to 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 give us all the things that we need and 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 we're we pray now at this time we can give back to to the church so that we may continue to grow here and be a light in this community in jesus name amen using a songbook and want to want to mark the invitation song it's 909 and now before Matt brings our lesson let's stand and sing I'll be a friend to Jesus <clears throat>
things and a whole lot of history and we're going to go through it as well we might just stop halfway through we're going to see we're going to see there's a lot to kind of go over I don't want to go over it so fast that we can't see all of the amazing detail and intricacy of this prophecy it's pretty staggering um, we have been talking the entire th time through Daniel about the amount of years that Daniel has covered and there's big chunks, big important pieces that are marked throughout these, um, this enormous amount of years. Daniel 11 really, it, 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 it's where God kind of zooms in to one of these spots and gives you what's going to happen before it happens in intricate detail, which I think is um, really cool myself. So we'll go ahead and get started. Daniel 11 verse 1 says this, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, so this is again at the beginning, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now this right here kicks off the exact certainty that scripture has to present for a prophecy to be true. So you go from Darius and you look at this Darius the Mede and you count from then forward over your next four kings of Persia. And you should find the one that gets defeated, ultimately loses Persia fully to the kingdom of, more specifically, Alexander the Great. So if you go through history, you will find that this lines up actually perfectly from Darius. After Darius, you have Cyrus. After Cyrus, you have Cambyses. After Cambyses, you have another Darius, which if you watch Alexander the Great in the Netflix documentary that they have out right now, I've already seen it all. This is the, they call him Darius. Maybe I've been saying it wrong the whole time. That's probably accurate. Darius. So this is the Darius or the Darius that you will see in the Netflix special that they have on right now on Alexander the Great. And then last but not least, Darius is defeated, defeated in battle by Alexander the Great, but is actually killed by his own men, by one of his own generals. And up from that rises his son, another very famous of the kings of Persians that, Persians that many things have been written about. If you've read 300, that's this guy Xerxes. 
So, this is where Alexander the Great defeats Persia. And what is left is Greece. Now, remember, Alexander the Great is actually throwing a party. Nobody really fully, if you look at the history of Alexander the Great, you will see that nobody, you, you can get a different perspective from different people because everybody's guessing because the truth wasn't just spelled out plainly, but Alexander the Great is essentially throwing a big party because he's now conquered Persia. He's now um, done this conquest and he throws a big party and he either is killed or what most people believe is he fell sick. Then he dies. All right, verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of the heavens. So we see all the prophecies we've been discussing before. We see the four heads on the third beast coming into shape with these four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. In other words, they're not, they're not as strong. Why? Because they're a divided kingdom, right? They are now four pieces of a kingdom, and they don't have the same authority. People aren't listening to them the same because their voices, they're not united. So the power is starting to weaken as soon as Alexander the Great begins to die or, or, or dies. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And as we know, that's, in my opinion at least, speaking of the Romans that are to come. All right, so this is the picture I showed a while ago that Mike Wall wanted me to explain a little further, and it just wasn't the time. Today is that time, okay? This down here, the orange, is the Ptolemaic kingdom. This was Ptolemy. Ptolemy was potentially Alexander the Great's greatest general. He was potentially the most famous general. If you know anything about your ancient Greeks, Greek history, you will know that when Alexander the Great comes down here to, 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 to come against Egypt, they make him their pharaoh. Alexander the Great becomes their pharaoh. So there's not a major war that happens in Egypt. Egypt bows down to Alexander the Great. Now Ptolemy, interestingly enough, he has an issue with this. They call it going native. You've gotten so far away from Macedon that you're forgetting how to be a Greek and you're going native. A Macedonian would never let the Egyptians worship him as a god. Now, Alexander the Great believes he's son of Zeus, okay? So he's, so he's just fine with it. Why I say that? Ptolemy's the one who comes back after Alexander the Great dies, and guess what he becomes? The next pharaoh. Okay. Ptolemy has children. One of those children is mentioned right here, okay? The king of the south, that's Ptolemy, shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. That's the Seleucia Empire, right here, the Seleucia Kingdom, the, the second part. As you can see, we have one in the south, we have one in the north. What is in the middle? What is in the middle of the power struggle? Jerusalem. Remember that. These are key points on the map that show us exactly what Daniel is prophesying about. And remember also how many times Daniel has went through these prophecies and he comes out of these prophecies and he's sick to the point where he can't sleep, to the point where he doesn't want to eat because of what he's seen Israel have to go through. 
Chapter 11 is probably the scariest part for all of anybody who's an Israelite at this time to ever have to read. Because it doesn't just talk about a war. It doesn't just talk about a king. It doesn't just talk about one time where they're going to get destroyed. It talks about how they're basically going to be a jewel that these two empires are fighting over for many generations. They're going to get stuck in the middle. All right. I think I've said enough on that. We'll move. Verse 5, then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. That's, again, something very specific. Just a little hint to say, oh, it's cool to just say I can say this guy or this guy, but here's some details, and they're going to come in these specific orders. Very important. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. So you see there's two arms in the conversation. One is of the wife that is going to become from the alliance. And the other arm is the, the ruler that was already in place. And it says, but she shall be given up. And her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times, they will all be given up as well. Now, that runs perfectly with history. Ptolemy had a prince. His name was Seleucus. King of the North, the Seleucid Empire. King of the South, the Ptolemaic Empire. Antiochus II marries Bernice, the daughter of Ptolemy. But despite giving his wife to her, he's got a problem. Antiochus II already has a wife. Her name is Laodicea. Well, how do you think that went over with her? Not very good. Because what's the problem here? Well, now her child's going to get overlooked. Yet again, we were talking this morning about the way of God versus the way of the world. Don't miss the way of the world. Don't miss this moment of Cain and Abel. Don't miss this point that you see over and over through history, even through leaders. And, it, and it, it's become, it's not even a surprise. Oh, yeah, of course. She, she had them killed. Of course. It's not even a surprise. So Laodicea poisons Ant Antiochus II and Bernice and their son and has everyone else loyal to Bernice killed. Everything that was planned goes awry in the exact order of the scriptures. Then it says this, and from a branch from her roots one shall arise in his place. So a branch from the roots of Bernice shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So Ptolemy III, Benice's brother, just so happens to, next move on the chessboard, Go up to that northern kingdom. 
and dominate to the point where recorded in history, he carries back the jewels of the Seleucid Empire. He carries back the artifacts of worship, the Egyptian artifacts of worship from the Seleucid Empire. This is recorded in history. Now, in one way, you can look at this and say, Matt, this is really interesting, but you know, all that's already happened. It's really easy to look back, but I want you to understand that this is why God, when he prophesies, he does not use um, these super vague things that you can turn into anything you want them to turn into. They either line up or they don't. They either make sense or they don't. They either really happen or they don't. You're either a real prophet or you're a false prophet. It's not vague things like a lot of the prophecy that if you if you're like me and you've been interested in that, maybe even since you were young like me, you know, you've went and you've looked. You've went and you've looked at other people that they've called prophets. You've went and looked at other prophecies that are outside of scripture. You've went and looked at these people out of curiosity just to see, like, why would they call them a prophet? Those prophecies are so vague, I can make them into anything I want them to be. That's been my experience over and over and over again. These are not prophecies that are vague. These are very specific. And they happen exactly the way they're said. In history, whether you're, whether you're a God-fearing person or somebody who doesn't believe in God, agrees on these facts. Verse 10, his son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress Then the king of the south. So you've got to understand that every time we get from one side to the other, they've had to go through Jerusalem. So don't forget that. Because part of what Daniel's definitely focusing in on during these things and, and as he's seeing them, part of the thing he's seeing over and over again is his people that are just stuck in the middle of this war over and over. Jerusalem getting devastated over and over. The people, the Israelites, the Jews getting destroyed over and over. All over a conflict that truthfully doesn't even involve them. They're just in the middle. Then the king of the south moved with rage shall come out and fight against the king of the north and he shall raise a great multitude but it shall be given into his hand and when the multitude is taken away his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So that was kind of a lot. Tried to make it as simple as possible. The sons of Seleucus II and Seleucus III and Antiochus III, the sons of Seleucus II were Seleucus, Seleucus III and Antiochus III. Antiochus III wins control over Jerusalem. Ptolemy IV defeats Antiochus III and regains control of Jerusalem. Wouldn't it have been easier if they just all had a different name? My word, how do you keep this all straight? Maybe that was part of the point to begin with. 
Anybody notice what we're getting close to? Remember that one guy we talked about that came in and desecrated Jerusalem and made the abomination of desolation? His name was also Antiochus. He was known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He was known as Antiochus, and, and the idea of the Epiphanes was the illumination. In other words, he was like God amongst men. In fact, he was greater than God. There was no other God like him. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. We're already on Antiochus III. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they shall fail. Don't miss this. You're starting to see revolts from the Jews. They're tired of being in this war. They're tired of being stuck in the middle. Now imagine this. Imagine being in this place. Eventually, you're probably going to do one of two things. You're probably either going to just move to get out of the way, or you're going to pick a side. And that's where we're getting to. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. You know, I often think to myself, was there a single Roman soldier in this mess that ever got to read Daniel 11? Because if they did, they might have known which side to get on. I want you to also see the hand of God that is moving amongst a people that, just to be as honest as I can be, are not people that are spending their time glorifying the Lord. Okay? They're not people that are spending their time sacrificing to Yahweh. Just like we saw from the beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, here we see in the Roman times, in the Greek times actually, before the Roman times, but um, leading to the Roman times, you still see God's hand. And as, as, as hard as it might be to also understand, in the midst of destruction. So, we continue with the same names. Antiochus III defeats Ptolemy V with the help of the Jews who thought they were helping free themselves from the oppression of the Ptolemaic Empire. Who are they freeing themselves to be under control of? Bum, bum, bum. Antiochus IV, here he comes. We're not there yet, but we're almost there. Verse 17, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of a woman to destroy the kingdom. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So he tries to pull that, well, 
Kind of what we see all through history, right? We can come to an agreement. You take my daughter in marriage. Now we're all family. Everything's good. But the whole time, he's really working something of a different angle. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. And he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. All of a sudden, something that was mighty, something that was conquering, something that was um, fierce and feared, all of a sudden disappears. So, to get to that treaty moment, to get to that agreement, Antiochus III gives Ptolemy V, Ptolemy V, his daughter, Cleopatra. And some of you are going, oh, Cleopatra. Wrong Cleopatra. Wrong one. We're not to Jesus' time yet, but Cleopatra is more towards Jesus' time. The marriage ends up having no influence because Cleopatra takes the side of her husband instead of her father. And therefore, the king's schemes backfire. So he turns his sight to the coastlands, looking to expand in the areas of Asia Minor and Greece, and is even joined in conquest by Hannibal. Another famous name that comes in. But is defeated by Lucius Cornelius Scipio, a Roman general. Now you see Rome starting to come into play. Needing money to pay off debts of a failed campaign, Antiochus III plunders a Babylonian temple. And while he is plundering a Babylonian temple, which many, many other sources that I read said was at the advice of bad counsel. In other words, his people were turning against him because they saw that the end was coming. And so they gave him bad advice. Hey, I got a good idea. Let's go plunder this temple. Nobody will care. Well, a lot of people cared. He ends up getting killed. Not in battle. Not in some heroic victory, not in a conquest, as a thief. We're not doing that bad. Verse 20, then shall arise in his place one who shall sin, an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Within a few days his kingdom is going to reign for a very short, very short time. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He's going to come in at just the right time and he's going to, oh, you want to be on my team? Well, then I'll promote you and I'll make sure you have a nice life and everything's going to be good. Just follow me. Just stick with your guy and I'm going to take care of everything. He's going to come in. He's, oh man, you are so beautiful. Everything is so great. This is awesome. Army shall be utterly swept away before him and broken. Even the prince of the covenant, remember that part, because we're going to see this starting to come to play. And I really believe, and I think you will see towards the end, that the prince of the covenant, I thought at first this might be something really significant. I really believe that the prince of the covenant, we go back to 
The fact that Michael was considered to be a prince over Jerusalem, I really think this is a point to where it's like, Jerusalem's going to get hammered. They're not just going to get hammered, but even God is not just going to be mocked. But there's going to come a time where Jerusalem isn't even going to be able to worship in the temple. They're not going to be able to worship in Jerusalem. You're not, if you're a Jew, you're not going to be allowed to go to Jerusalem unless you've swore off all your Yahweh stuff and you've assimilated into the Greek culture. And from, that, and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with the small people. So Antiochus III's eldest son, Seleucus III, authorized attacks over his dominion, including Jerusalem, which probably led to the opportunity for his brother, you guessed it, Antiochus IV, to, Antiochus IV not the force. The force is with this one. The dark, the dark side. Antiochus IV to assassinate him. You see, nobody liked this guy anyway. He's taxing everybody. And he comes in, he says, oh, in that tax, you know, the things you don't like, I'm going to take care of it. Just let me kill my brother and become king. He wasn't supposed to be. He didn't come from that position where he was next in line. He subverts the throne. If you go back, it's all there. It's all there. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done. So he's going to become greater than all the rest of these since the dividing of the kingdom, since Alexander the Great. His power is going to be greater than anybody else's before him over the Greek Empire since Alexander the Great when it was a united kingdom. Scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. See, that's what he's going to do that's different. He's going to come into these places, and as they're plundering, he is going to share so that everybody is getting rich. Everybody is feeling good on life. Everybody is loving what this guy is doing for them. He's doing it with flattery. He's doing it with gifts. At the same time, they're running around deceiving, scheming, plotting, and destroying he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with him with an even greater army, with an exceedingly great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And for the two kings. Okay. If I've lost you in the history part, come back to me. This is the moment. In fact, we can just stop tonight and I can finish later. That's fine. All right? But this is the moment that I want you to see. I don't want you to miss this. Okay? Because to me, this is one of the biggest parts of the entire revelation of Daniel that really brings it all together. All right? We've been talking about Antiochus IV. A big portion of the rest of this chapter is really just about him. You're getting a different look at how he accomplishes what he does. 
How can somebody this evil, this terrible, this detestable to God thrive? Well, you see how he does it. With flattery, with gifts, with lavish lifestyles. He leads everybody astray. But this whole time you thought there was two kings and you thought there was, um, well, a conflict, right? Well, there is a conflict. But where are the two kings? Where are they? Verse 27, And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. Both the king of the north and both the king of the south, even though they've been, this has been prophesied by God, who are they working for? Not God. Right? Two choices. They shall speak lies at the same table. I thought they were enemies. I thought this was like the first Hatfields and McCoys. Except for it's even weirder than that because they actually both originally start in the same family. They sat at the same table. They spoke the same lies. But to no avail. For the end is yet to be as the time appointed. I'm going to say something that not everybody's going to agree with, and that's fine because I have to interpret to the best of my ability, and some of this is guesswork just like anybody else who's ever tried to interpret Daniel. But one of the things that I've seen over and over and over is a reality. Okay, it's one of the reasons why that led me to preach what I preached even this morning, because I'm seeing it through scripture. And when I see when when God is constantly putting something in my face in different studies that I'm going through, I try to take note of that. And one of the things that I see in Daniel is, yes, there are there are four kingdoms, right? There's Babylonians, there's the Medes, the Persians, there's the Greeks, there's the Romans, right? There's four kingdoms. Okay, there's four beasts. But is there really four kingdoms? Is there really four beasts? Or is it really all the same beast? And ultimately, is it really all the same kingdom? Think about this. When the Babylonians get taken over by the Medes and the Persians, the king changed, but who else is still in charge? That name that we kept talking about at the beginning of Daniel, it keeps coming up. They're called the Chaldeans. They keep coming up. And guess what? No matter what the king changes, no matter what the country changes, the Chaldeans are still right there giving advice to those kings. They're still right at the top of the list. Daniel goes up and down. People forget about Daniel, but the Chaldeans stay right at the top. There's something, I'm telling you, there's something to this. If you go to Revelation and you look, at the beast in Revelation, the beast in Revelation, that scripture talks about how that beast, that beast of Revelation that John is talking about, he spends his time pointing everybody back to the first beast. Go look at the description of the first beast in Revelation. It's got all the same characteristics of the four beasts, but it's one. And the thing, if, if, if I can't get you to see anything else, if I can't get you to go as crazy as I go, okay? When I look at this, the one thing I do want you to see over and over and over is in a world of variance, 
Okay? This was kind of a side note this morning, but it's, this is the note tonight. In a world of variance, you go in, you say, oh, you know, the Romans, you look at the Romans and the Greeks. They make us study the Romans and the Greeks in middle school and in that type of age group, right? And you look at their gods and their goddesses. Well, they have different names, but they're basically the same gods. We'll go back to the Persians and look at theirs. They have different names, but they're basically the same God. We'll go back and look at the Babylonians and look at theirs. Well, there are different gods with different names, but they're basically the same exact gods. They just draw them different. Oh, by the way, it goes further back than that. Go back to Egypt and look at Egypt. And what you will realize is they're basically different names, different depictions, same gods. And it goes even deeper than that. Go all the way back to Samaria. Go back to the, to, the, to, the, to, the, um, to the concrete scrolls, if you will, that they use to, to say that, oh no, you don't have to trust the Bible. You can trust these people over here. Right? Because they're actually, their stuff actually dates older than even the stuff in scriptures. We'll go back and look at their gods. They're basically the same gods, just depicted a little different with different names. Is it really all different? I don't think it is. I think one of the things that you can see very clearly is what happens when you follow God or when you choose to follow man. It's the two cultures. We just talked about this morning. It's the king of heaven or your king on earth. It's do you follow God or are you your own God? It's the same concept over and over and over and over again. You know what's most interesting about that? I showed you this years ago. I, I'm just putting all this together myself in my own life. But do you remember years ago, I showed you all this different imagery from all of these different religions through all of time. And I showed you how there was always a significance to the serpent. Oh, imagine that on the same Wednesday night where we were just talking about the serpent. And the famous symbolism of this serpent that you find all throughout all these different religions, somehow it just keeps coming back. For example, if you look at, um, um, let's just pick one. If you look at the Hindu religion, right? The Hindu religion of creation that we live on, this world that we live on, the, de the, the picture, the depiction of the world that you live on is, oh, by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, but we're actually all riding on a giant sea turtle. I'm serious, and the shell is earth. In the atmosphere, if you will, that protects it, right? Go look it up, see if I'm lying to you. Is one of the symbols that you will see in almost every single other religion, somewhere, some shape, somehow. Do you know what the atmosphere that protects it is? It's a self-eating snake. It's a beast that eats itself. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that concludes Daniel 11 for tonight. Um, I hope you all have sweet dreams. And uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the reality is, uh, in my opinion, is the world, the world has been fooled, you guys. It's been told that all these variants are actually differences when all these variants are just the same thing. You're either following God or you're, 
or you're not. You're either on God's side or you're, or you're not. You're either doing righteous and good things or you're not. Where are you at? We'll finish the rest of Daniel 11 and uh, 12 next week and then we'll be done with Daniel and we'll get on to something that's a little less history, I promise you. But I'm looking out tonight and I just want to say if there's anybody who has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, look, he's the only way. It's the choice. It's the only choice. There's two choices. He's the only choice that leads to salvation. It's his blood that washed away our sin. It's that gift that gives us the opportunity to have the Holy Spirit, God uniting with us. God going with us. And if you haven't done that, I, I pray that you do that. And for those of us who have, I pray that we live a life that says, no, we can trust this word despite what everybody else, what every other smart thing the devil comes up with to fool us and tell us it's something different. I pray we can stay strong in our faith and stay firm in this word. It stands up to time. It stands up to criticism. We just got to trust it and follow it. If you got a need to respond to the invitation, you can come as together we stand and sing. for you. evening. I have a few reminders of things that are happening in the next few days before we close. First of all, the food pantry is open tomorrow. Uh, they need lots of help. Uh, things will be going on from about 8 o'clock till after 3 o'clock. So if you have open time, any of that time, there's something for you to do. Our supper and singing Wednesday night fellowship is this week, February 26th. The supper will be at six, uh, the singing at seven. 
We'll be having barbecue, pulled chicken, and pork, and we ask that you bring desserts if you plan to be here to share. The elders, deacons, preacher, and ministry leaders uh, quarterly meeting will be March 5th at 7 p.m. That's a week from Tuesday. If that applies to you, please plan to be there. Also, next Sunday afternoon, there will be a baby shower for Amir and Melissa Anderson uh, at 3 p.m. It's here at the building. It is a couple shower, so you're all invited. Thank you. Stand, please stand as we sing, take the name of Jesus with you, and Don will lead our closing prayer. Take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow.